0: we were left some two weeks ago when we had the the final such lecture we are somewhere in the 19th chapter paragraph number 16 the story of the rich young man it is a story which we are using often as exemplificative when it comes to the aparigraha or attachment to material object possessiveness and therefore I will not feel the need to insist a lot because this one has explicitated a lot nevertheless I will read through it. Now a man came up to Jesus and asked Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Here, we can see that Jesus is making a fine distinction, a very fine distinction, because in the beginning he gives a quite dismissive answer, like, what do you mean, what is good? It's like people are all the time trying to mix it up to confuse it in all kind of ways and Jesus is always when it comes beyond a certain point Jesus is the one who is a fundamentalist who is very much tough on some meanings it's like the truth is very clear and don't try just I mean you're asking me now some clever question what could I do to be good and so on there is only one that is good And basically he brings everything back to God all the time. We are talking about God. It's kind of... I can see it often in life that some people are trying to replace the spiritual activity with all kinds of things which are like social activity, charitable activity, all kinds of other things. And nobody says that those are wrong. But it's kind of... You always have to be focused... On what is essential. It's like not to try to find surrogate. replacements, Second hand replacement. Second grade replacements. The kind that you have to be focused on what is spiritual. So the first. Answer of Jesus is kind of. He doesn't seem to be very friendly. He's having a kind of a stern attitude. Like what kind of question is this. What, which ones, which commandments the man inquired Jesus replied do not murder, do not commit adultery do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself this being of course taken from the Old Testament from the Ten Commandments and all the others all these I have kept, the young man said what do I still lack Here, the young man is already a little bit on the side. Probably the tone of his voice already was a bit irritating that Jesus gave him a first dismissive one. And you can see it from this second one. The man is a bit arrogant. Usually an arrogant person would say, I have kept the commandments. What else am I lacking? It's kind of the more humble ones would say, Well, I'm guilty of all the abominations of this world. Who is perfect in the eyes of God? one who would be more humble, would find a lot, of faith, a lot of fault with himself and say, well, I've tried to keep the commandments, but I must admit that I'm not as perfect as I would be. But this young man is pretty arrogant, as you can see, because he said, I've done all that. And then Jesus is going to show him that he actually didn't. He is coming back to him in a way which simply says, if you would have done all those, you wouldn't dump now my silly little test. This little test which I'm giving now to you would be so easy for one who would be there. But there you are, that you are kind of bragging, you are kind of thinking too high about yourself. And then Jesus answers, he attacks him in a roundabout way. If you want to be perfect, he says, so you did all those? Okay, what are you missing? Here it is. If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, when, the, who then can be saved? It's like it's so difficult. Everybody's thinking about this one way or another, and then they simply say, wow, you are making it really difficult, like a camel through the eye of a needle. Who then can be saved? Because here they are, they are much more humble and they immediately think, well, we are also deep, deep into it, you know, so it's kind of, then who can be saved? They don't say, ah, we are perfect, yeah, the rich man cannot go, but we fortunately were not such stupid jerks like that boy was. You see the difference, while the boy was immediately saying, I did all those, what else? The apostles on the contrary The disciples, they immediately take it and they say, Wow, we also have a lot of problems with this, although actually none of them is a rich man, but they are having a much more correct attitude. Jesus looked at them and said, With men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. This is a beautiful, beautiful statement, which actually shows in a metaphysical way That the enlightenment, this salvation, who then can be saved, is something which comes from the divine. Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. That means the human being is so limited and imperfect that it will always have a flaw. That's why the great mystics have always said, who is perfect in the eyes of God? Who will be so arrogant as to say, I am flawless? There is always some imperfection. I was reading for you that psalm, and I didn't find that prayer someplace. I'll find it one day for you, that prayer for confession and communion, where people simply confess all the crimes of the world. It's like I confess that I have done everything abominable, and I have like it is a crime among the list of things which I have done and which I haven't done, They quote things such as, I haven't been as good as I could have been. Even that is a betrayal, right? Because God gave me the capacity to be good and to do. But I'm lazy or I'm indolent or I'm whatever and I haven't done all the good I could have done. I could have broken away another 30 minutes from my sleep and done more good to more people. But I have given up and I haven't. Am I not a lazy bastard? that actually I'm having a few years to live on this planet and actually instead of using them full power wired up like Ramakrishna or like Jesus I'm actually uh, giving up the battle so easily and I'm just uh, sinking back into my comfort and everything yes of course from a certain standpoint I am guilty because I should burn with full intensity in this life And I'm making so many compromises and for the sake of my own comfort and laziness and whatever. So if I want to find myself guilty, I can find myself guilty of a hundred things which I haven't done right or which I could have done better or I have been a part of this or of that. And that is why uh, if you take it through the human power, remember salvation is not something which you get through your human power. Because nobody is perfect enough. If there wouldn't be compassion, if there wouldn't be grace, if there wouldn't be God, nobody would be able to cross the gap. Because actually the gap is that I am a finite measure, I am a finite body, I am a finite energy, I am a finite mind, and I am trying to reach the infinite. How can one cross from finite to infinite? It's impossible, is it? How much effort should I do to reach the infinite? If I want to be like Buddha, I'm actually trying to reach the infinite. But the infinite cannot be won through tapas. I cannot do prostrations or meditation hours or asanas or whatever, enough minutes to gain the infinite. Because as many minutes as I do, it's a finite measure. And something finite cannot comprise something which is infinite, cannot contain it. Therefore, this idea that with my tapas I am gaining merit, it is valid symbolically onto a level. It's like I'm showing to God that I want to do this and this. It's like I'm moving a torch on the sky. I'm moving the torch 20 centimeters like this, but on the sky, the beam of light of my torch or a laser would go to the infinite, would go light years and light years and would move. It's a symbolic thing. As much practice as I do, it's never enough. How could 30 years of meditation, even if I do what Milarepa did, I'm sitting there and meditating 40 years day in and day out and eating nettles or whatever. How could that buy the infinite? Nobody can buy the infinite with prostrations or with eating nettles or with 40 years of meditation. The infinite is too big to be bought with 40 years of meditation. That's all. All I can do is to give a signal. It is give a symbol of my effort that I want. But ultimately, it is the grace of God. That is why Jesus says, with man, if you think like this, you are right. We are such sinners. We are so imperfect. And the disciples lament. They say, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, you are right. With men, it would be impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Because God is the only thing which can transform this into the infinite. Reaching the infinite is always a matter of grace. Reaching the ultimate states of Samadhi is something in which you are taken. You are swept into it. And this is what creates it. And that is why remember that the personal effort can reach you only to a certain point which is like on the edge of the things. But the ultimate force which creates the actual salvation or whatever you will want to call it, enlightenment or whatever, that is not something human. And Jesus in a beautiful way, in a very human way, reveals it here by saying what is impossible for humans is possible for God, actually. So don't worry about that. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What what then will there be for us? It's pretty pragmatic, pretty naughty question, but nevertheless it is asked. Peter is a fiery one, and he steps forward and he asks, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things... Which can mean only the end of Kali Yuga, which can mean the end of time, at the renewal of all things. It's midnight and the new day starts. It is obviously the beginning of the new cosmic cycle which is announced. At the beginning, at the renewal of all things, what a beautiful definition, how suggestive that the beginning of Satya Yuga is the renewal of all things. It's like a new sap of God, it's like a new breath of spiritual life is infused again into this world. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, that's himself, so he up, presents himself apotheotically, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He's still very much into the Jewish environment still. His mission has not blown universally yet. And therefore, first of all, everything is reserved. Everything is seen from the prism of this Jewish environment, the 12 tribes and everything. So he simply chooses 12 disciples and he simply proclaims them as headlines, as kind of judges of the 12 tribes. Uh which is a very significant scene from the standpoint of the judaic mysticism of course that would be, that was kind of a huge provocation to say this because of course the high priests and all these uh, manipuristic uh, rulers of the time they thought that they are the ones uh, how can this guy take a fisherman from capernaum and some copper beater from whichever city, and turn them into the God-appointed judges of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's like going for the sky, going for the prime time, going for the best thing, and it was kind of unacceptable. Socially, these people felt like they were deprived because uh, the power of judgment should be theirs, or some people appointed by them that is why Jesus is completely unconventional here he simply says these people will be promoted like being the judges of their race as being the people appointed by God to look upon it and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much And will inherit eternal life here it's a very comforting promise serving exactly this pragmatical spirit of Peter who asks what will we get out of this and Jesus simply says all those who have sacrificed something for God for their spirit basically they will have everything that's what what all the spiritualists in the history of this planet says there was nobody of the great spiritualists, Milarepa or Yogananda, Rumi or Jesus for the case, who at any time they were sorry that they lost their time, that they waste, or wasted opportunities, that they haven't been visiting enough the discos and the clubs because they did too much meditation or yoga or whatever. It's never appearing like this because actually the spirituality contains in it a reward which is much much bigger than that and therefore jesus says gives a huge promise of a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life which is fundamental but he says his famous sentence which later he also explained it earlier but he will explain it later in a beautiful parable and he says but many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. This is the paradox of Kali Yuga. In Kali Yuga, that's exactly how it looks. Many people today, when you look at the world, especially those of you who took decisions and who are a bit deeper in yoga, sometimes, surely, your heart is torn between these things. Because you look around and you see people, your contemporaries, people from the same generation of yours, your ex-colleagues from high school or from college or whatever, some of them already have a family, some of them already have children, some of them already have a good job and a career, and you look at yourself and you are a vagabond, you are a hobo, you are nothing. You haven't got children, you haven't got career, you haven't got this, you haven't got that, and it's impossible, it's human, that a small voice inside you is asking and saying, shit, I'm wasting my life. What am I doing here? My God, you know? It's kind of, I'm becoming nothing. I'm I'm losing it. And that's exactly what Jesus says. Whoever will lose their life for me will actually earn it, will actually win it in the end. And basically, that is why Jesus says, that's the illusion of Kali Yuga. Many of those who are first will be last. Like today in the life, you look at somebody who did this and did that and did that, and say, well, at least these are people who did something. And then at the renewal of all things, suddenly the perspective is turned upside down. Those who seem to have done a lot of things, and they are the first, actually, eventually, in the kingdom of God, in the real vision of God, they are nothing, they are repeaters, they are people who have to repeat class, they have to go again through the whole caboodle, because they haven't learned the lesson and some people who are nothing, and you can say, what did this dude do? No, he didn't do anything, but he gave his life to God, and because of this, he won everything. If you want to take it like this, what is the big deal about a man like Rumi or a man? You can ask yourself, what did a guy like Yogananda do? Yeah, right, he was a good organizer, he made a school for boys, and he did this, and he was helped by a lot of people normally, he did it. What's the big deal? He just wandered from here there and wrote a book which was written by his disciples actually and he did this and that and basically what's the big deal, you know? It's kind of you can always put it down and say, well, Yogananda or Rumi or Milarepa or whatever, they are just some vagabonds, you know? There are people who built the Eiffel Tower. There are people who discovered the cure for rabies. There are people who build aircraft and vaccinations and things like this, those seem to be important and Jesus says many of those which seem to be first are last and the other way around because sometimes a person who apparently didn't do anything can be the first in terms of divinity and somebody who seemed to do a lot and was successful and powerful and had money and had career and had charisma and had this and had that eventually when the Things come to an account, to a final account, is nothing. Remember that especially in Kali Yuga, appearances appearances are very, very deceptive. Because in Kali Yuga, we are tormented by these appearances, materialism and everything. And everybody is tortured by the fact, oh, my life is going away and I'm not doing anything. But you are doing a great thing, Jesus says. You are Giving your life to God. And that's the best and the biggest thing. Don't be afraid to be nothing. Because the last will be the first. And the first will be the last. But you have to have the faith. To go till the end. To run this race. Till its end. It's not something which you just do for 3 months. And say see. See for 3 months I resisted. For 3 months everybody can resist. The question is if you can reach to be 60. And still resist. Still resist to have wasted everything and to say, what have I got? I am empty. I haven't done anything, really. I haven't got anything. And yet, I have done the most precious thing in this world. Remember that in Kali Yuga, the world is upside down. That is why even in the book of Revelation, later, uh, the devil is called the prince of this world. This world is not run by God. Look around. Look what's happening around. We are not living in a world run by God. This world is run by the divine consciousness, but in a, but in a non-intrusive way, like from a distance. And on the contrary, the demonic dark forces, all kind of forces which are materialistic and confusing, they are running the show and they are creating, especially in Kali Yuga, they are creating the appearance that you can get away with a lot of demonic things and basically it's kind of, you have, You see only bad models. Wherever you look, it's only bad models. It's only things where you say, see, you should be like George W. Bush. You should be like Bill, like whatever, Bill Gates. You should be like this. You should be like that. And all of them are exactly the reverse pyramid. It's kind of a the pyramid of hierarchy, reversed, upside down. We are looking up, things which are actually very much down and the other way around and that is why uh, Jesus here says it and he is going to actually demonstrate it in the parable which follows he says for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and send them into his vineyard About the third hour, the third hour would be like nine o'clock because they were counting the hours from sunrise. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour, that would be midday by now and the ninth hour, that would be 3 p.m. already, and did the same thing. About the 11th hour, which would be like almost sunset by now, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, Why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, You also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. So when those came who who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, They began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give to the, the man who was hired last the same as I gave you don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be the first and the first will be the last. It is very interesting, right? You can take it like this. In a cosmic cycle, there will be people who will be enlightened now in Kali Yuga. Like some of you will reach Samadhi now in Kali Yuga and there are some who have been enlightened 10,000 years ago And they bore the heat of the day. They worked for the last 10,000 years in Shambhala. And whatever, bearing the heat of the day. And in the end you come in the 11th hour. And you reach Samadhi. And you sit at the right hand of God with the other saints as well. It's kind of unfair, isn't it? Because you kind of, you span around. You spun around and you wasted time until the 11th hour. And then in the last minute you caught the bus. You caught the last bus. To enlightenment, you caught the last train to nirvana. And uh, the others who have been there early and whose soul has been diligent, they have been working the whole day. And yet the payment is the same. The last will be the first and the first will be the last. Funny enough, the last one he worked less, but he received the same and he even got his pay first and went. Because God says why. Don't I have the right to do? That means I am not bound by the rules of the human beings. If the divine consciousness, that's the quality of grace. Jesus here speaks about grace, about which Kashmir Shaivism speaks in such an admirable way. Because Jesus says the grace is free. Are you going to oblige the grace of God to give more to that and less to this one because this one deserves and this one doesn't? Who are you to decide for God? By which criteria is your mind smart enough to decide on anything in this universe? Whatever seems common sense to you can be madness seen from the standpoint of God. And That is why here you have to understand that the divine consciousness is something entirely different than the mind and its criteria are completely different. And the grace is not conditioned. You cannot simply force the hands of the grace saying I'm just going to do something and therefore God will give me this and that. You always have to be humble. This leads us again to humbleness because whatever you do, you cannot force the hands of the grace. The grace is anyhow a grace. It was grace for the first workers who received the present anyhow because they were hired just like this and they received their pay for the day and it was also a whim of the owner That he went in the marketplace in the ninth hour and he went in the marketplace even in the 11th hour. What? If he had money and he could afford and God always has grace and can afford anything, anytime. If if the man had this and he had the whim that he wanted to make more people happy, he did. And those people actually worked less and took the same. That is why you can see from this that in the divine consciousness the perspective is very different. The first are the last and the last are the first. One who is now first can appear the last and vice versa. And that is why, remember, that's the thing which keeps us running in Kali Yuga. Because many of you, you are asking yourselves, how does it come that we receive so much information? How does it come that we receive things which in the old days people had to work 12 years to serve faithfully their master or whatever, to receive all these How does it come that we, we who are little pygmies of Kali Yuga, we hope to reach nirvana and enlightenment just like Milarepa and God knows who, when those people were giants, were titans? There's nobody in this room who can claim I'm doing as much yoga as Milarepa did or whatever. Because those people indeed were giants. They were yogis 24-7 and they did some efforts which were flabbergasting when you read The Life of Milarepa or Things Parallel. You simply shake your head and get goosebumps and you say, I, I don't know. It's, it means I have to quit yoga because I'm getting discouraged when I read this. Because it's kind of, I never can measure up to such a one. Compared to Milarepa, I'm just a baby. I'm a small baby. And the question is, how does it come? It's possible. Well, you are the workers of the 11th hour. The day is about to end. And you have been hired in the 11th hour. And the funny thing is that you do much less than Milarepa in totally different conditions than Milarepa. And you use mini discs and God knows what else you are using and watch lectures on video and so on. And it still works for you as much as it worked for Milarepa. Why? Because the God, the grace of God is equal. There are your own difficulties. You being in Kali Yuga. You are also confronted with difficult choices. You are also confronted with your own problems. And basically for you, it is much more difficult to choose than it was for Milarepa in his time. Because in the time of Milarepa, the Tibetan life in the countryside was so simple and boring and whatever that it was basically no difference. People lived like monks anyhow, more or less, in terrible deprivation and in hardship and so on. And basically... The difference was not so big, and you have to study these things in perspective. That is why I'm saying it again, that here is a thing of the divine consciousness. It's the grace of God. It cannot be measured by the standards of the common sense of the mind, because the common sense of God is different from the common sense of the limited mind. That is why, yes, it works for you, although you do less than Milarepa and you are living in other conditions, precisely because you are in other conditions. And if God has decided to give to the workers from the 11th hour the full pay for the day, that's simply a manifestation of the grace of God for which we can be only super grateful that we are born in such circumstances. For us, the difficulty is to make our choices, to commit our lives and to make our choice to something because we are all the time distracted and tempted to do something else with our lives, to follow a career, to follow that. Not that it's wrong. If you can follow a career and a family and everything without losing your spiritual aspiration and your spiritual urge and practice, it's perfectly okay. As you know, we don't have a priori in yoga anything against neither doing social or external things, beautiful, helping the mankind. Many yogis did as well as there is nothing inherent against the family life or whatever. I mention them only as distractions in the moment when they replace the spiritual life, not that they complement it. As you know, in the spiritual life both alternatives are possible, only that of course many yogis in the last hundreds of years have simply considered that life is so complicated that they don't have enough time and energy to split themselves between too many things Because then they will not do anything seriously. And it's also a difficult test for you, for anyone, to be involved in the life, to be involved in career, in family, and while you are following your career and personal ambitions and you get caught in the web of this, because the mind forgets and it gets caught into this, while you are getting caught in the things of your family and whatever, not to forget to give God the first place. Never forget what the great Ruskin said, that if you give to God the second place in your life, you don't give him any place. That means for God, you either have the first place in your life, or then you don't have any. That's the equation. And that is why, if you manage to keep this intensity that always God should be your first love, then automatically everything else in your life can go. If you forget this very important issue, if you forget your Ishvara Pranidhana, then automatically you will run in trouble. So that is why, funny enough, yes, it is possible even now in the 11th hour that you do your spiritual effort and you get the full pay of the day and you say, wow, we are in Shambhala, we are sitting at the right hand of God, we are with the saints, and when I look back, there are some who in the last 2,000 years have been incarnated 16 times, Allah, karma karmapa or whatever, and they have done a lot of work for the benefit of mankind, and they had to take a lot of kicks in the ass, and they had to do a lot of yoga in each of those lives, and they had to have a lot of compassion, and they had to take a lot of negative karma upon themselves, and they had to deal with a lot of misunderstanding and uh, obstacles from the others, and I, who am just a last-minute passenger, I'm basing, get, basically getting the, the same benefits in the end as those who are much more worthy of me. That's the nature of grace. Grace is its own judge. Grace does not listen to mathematical calculations. We cannot do these petty calculations. And that is why Jesus says those who will be lost will be first and those who will be first will be last. Sometimes they seem to be people who have done a lot and actually they haven't done that much and they, have to, they seem to be people who have been not doing so much and actually they will get everything. That is why uh, things are very important from this standpoint. However I would like to call your attention on a thing which is not underlined here very clearly but which the fathers of the desert and other great mystics in Christianity, and not only, they have underlined. I don't know if you see in this story, and in others of their kind, but everything seems to focus towards the end of the process. Therefore, it's not like this, that somebody worked in the first hour, and after working one hour, he got bored and went away, and then God went in the marketplace and say, wow, you... You worked from 6 to 7 o'clock in the morning and you work also, okay, here is for you also. No, it's valid for those who came from the 11th hour to the 12th hour, not from those who might have come from the first hour to the second hour and then deserted, which simply means the end is the one which is the most important. That means the end of your life and the way you are greeting death the way you are going to your death. That is why many, there is one great Christian mystic, I forgot now who said this, but it's one of the great Christian mystics who says something like this, I cannot translate it because I remember the thing in Romanian and it's in a peculiar language and therefore I'll try to translate it approximately. It simply says in whatever the end catches you, in that you will stay. That means you have done yoga for 11 hours and in the 12th hour you became a drunk and an idiot and you you die like an ignorant. If your death catches you in filth, you go in filth. And on the contrary, you lived in filth until the 11th hour and then at the 11th hour you started doing meditation and yoga big time and your end, your death, the doomsday or whatever... The time when everything is renewed, as Jesus says, catches you in full-fledged meditation, catches you in full impetus of your aspiration and spiritual practice. Well, lucky bastard that you are, it caught you into that, in that you are. That is why you are going to see that it is not equal. This is actually more difficult. That is why it is difficult to keep the race till the end. There is a very beautiful movie made about the life of the apostles. is called Peter and Paul, in which the apostle Paul is played by Anthony Hopkins. And there is a very beautiful scene taken from uh, the life of uh, Paul that at some point Paul is called again by the emperor, by Caligula, the Roman emperor, or Nero, sorry. And uh, he, it's obvious that Nero is going to condemn him to death. He had been a prisoner uh, in a house prisoner for a few years and in which Nero whimsically kept on postponing, postponing. And at some point, Nero and the others around him, they felt so offended that they decided, okay, let's finish this guy off. And suddenly he sends the soldiers and says, you should present in front of the emperor. And it's obviously that now he's going to lose his head and he's going to be martyrized. And in the moment when he reaches this, Paul takes a glass of, he pours a cup of wine and he cheers with everybody and he says, for me, the great match is over. Finally, I have reached the end of the race and I have won. I have been beaten, I have been tortured, I have suffered, my faith has been put to great trials, but I have won. I haven't lost my faith till the last minute. Now I am in front of the last minute. And lucky me, I still have my faith intact and I'm still spiritual. I haven't forgotten. So now I know because I die like this, I have won the prize. I'm going to take the big prize because I've been a worker till the 12th hour. I have worked till the end of the day. And working till the end of the day, I have the right to the pay. I am going to be paid by the master of the vineyard like everybody else. Even if Paul, remember, Paul didn't even meet Jesus personally. And worse, Paul in the beginning of his life, in his youth, was a great killer of Christians. He was a great persecutor of Christians. And he kept on persecuting and killing them. And he had a vision of light. And he had a mystic shock. And then he got kind of violently converted to Christianity and became super hot for it from becoming one of its most terrible foes, one of its most terrible adversaries. And therefore, you can say, wow, a man who like Milarepa, he was a murderer and he was a persecutor, and then he did a few years of traveling and preaching and whatever. It's true, his life was quite heroic, and there he was gaining the big prize. This is a worker of the 11th hour, really. He came in the vineyard in the 11th hour, and he left with a full denarius out of there. He went with a full prize. Therefore, remember that this is not emphasized clear enough, but it's about the end. It doesn't work the same with the morning or with the evening. It's only about the end or the evening. That is why the whole thing is to be able to resist the game till the end of it, till the end of the day when the time is coming. That is why for most mystics, This was their greatest worry, that they should not lose their spirituality. That's why many mystics, they have considered it a marathon. Some mystics, they have been martyrized, like uh, Paul, as I said, and Peter, and tens of thousands of others, not only in Christianity, they have been martyrs in the ancient Judaism, they have been martyrs in Islam and Sufism, There have been martyrs even in Buddhism and in Hinduism, although a bit less because of the conditions in those parts of the world. And therefore, there are people who won their laurel crown, their crown of victory in a day or in a month of terrible ordeals. And there have been people who had to run the full marathon for the life. There have been people, they gained their spirituality when they were 20 and they got to live until 80. And from the age of 20 till the age of 80, they had to hammer the iron to keep it warm. And that is called by the fathers of the desert, the daily life martyrdom, the everyday martyrdom. And they simply say that everyday martyrdom is more difficult than the one-time martyrdom. Because the one-time martyrdom can be terrible that somebody kills you like they killed Paul. But it's a one time you clench your teeth and you go into the glory. And the others, they have to clench their teeth every day. Because every day you may worry, am I going to fall off the path? Am I going to forget? Or even when I will be 60, will I be at least as spiritual and as full of aspiration as I am today? Or am I going to get distracted by something and forget? That's the most terrible fear. That's the most terrible threat that I will forget and I will fall off the path. And although I worked from 6 o'clock in the morning to 12 o'clock at noon, then I forgot and I will not be there at pay time. I will not get the pay of the day. While the bastard who came at 5 o'clock p.m., he stayed there just one hour, and he got the pay of the day. That is why it's better. It's very important to be there. In the end, the end chooses. It was one of the favorite sayings of the of the old monk who taught me chiropractic and who was also a very very spiritual person. This man, whenever people pushed an argument, like uh, people said, but what about this? But but uh, you know this, and so on. He would never argue with people. He tried to give them the arguments of common sense as long as it was like this. And if the discussion would become too argumentative, like trying to become like a struggle, he would immediately withdraw from the struggle and he would always say, my son, it is the end that chooses. That simply means you want to argue with me? Mm. See you in Eden. See you in 50 years and if you will be there, it's good for you. That simply means you can come with all kind of abracadabra, theories, but the end chooses. That means if in the end you are biting the dust, then you have chosen bad. I'm not going to quarrel with you. It's the end which chooses. You want to follow some stupid path, and you are arguing with me that your stupid path is good? Follow it, but never forget that the end is choosing. The end is the one which is deciding. And therefore, it's the end of the day, the pay time. That's why I say the end has a special significance here, because as you can see, everything compresses towards the end. Fortunately for us as well, we are also in some form of end, because this time of Kali Yuga which we live, it is a form of end of days. It is a form of final time of Kali Yuga, and therefore we are actually running the last straight line of the race, And in this way, it kind of uh, compared to others who had the perspective like a whole lifetime of waiting and so on. Some people may think that in this way you are looking at something more tangible. Remember always, because many mystics, they prayed for this. They simply said, God, don't let me fall off. Don't let me get lost of the path. That's the biggest thing. I'll get distracted and suddenly I'll have a career. I'll have five kids crying for food. I'll have this, I'll have that. And then suddenly there will be no more time for spirituality. And I will not be there for the pay time. And therefore, this was the greatest worry of spiritual practitioners. I remember once I met with, uh, I told you some stories at some point about a very advanced monk whose prayer could do miracles and had forms of clairvoyance and so on. And this guy at some point, he was keeping speeches to people and whatever, and then uh, after talking to people for one hour, two hours, inspiring them or whatever, he would suddenly say, now I have to go to plow my field, like to do some spiritual work. And people looked at him like, what? This guy was 70 years old and he was kind of venerable. And what plowing of the land should he do? And he said, yes, because while I was talking to you, there was weeds growing on my, on my fields. So now I have to go back at my fields and disc them, plow them again, clean them again, weed them again. It's like the mind will always develop impurities. I have seen this, Even with great teachers in yoga, even great masters in yoga, I have seen some of the people that I have known personally who definitely were great masters in yoga and if for a while they forgot to do what they had to do and they took on, took on, took on other people's karma, other people's psychic elements, other people's worries and negative energies, suddenly they were not so spiritual anymore. They were like bending under the burden Of a lot of miserable things. And sometimes doing things even. Which are not very spiritual. And not very laudable and whatever. And you can ask yourself. How is that possible? This is how it is possible. Because you risk to fall off the path. You worked for 5 hours. But you have to work the whole 12 hours. You have to work until the last. And there is always the danger. That you will fall off the path. That is why. It is good news. But at the same time, it is bad news because this battle ends at the hour of your death, not earlier than that. Either any one of you here will be blessed with the uh, crown of martyrdom and will die early being turned into a martyr. Bitter times may come in the history of this planet and you never know what's going to happen in the next years. Or you are going to have to run the full marathon till you will be 80. And you'll have to be a martyr every day, putting your ass to work and staying on the path and making sure that you don't lose your soul, that you don't lose your heart, that you stay, that you don't get confused, that you don't get distracted, that you don't get deviated. I, Whichever way you will be, time will tell in which category you will be. Usually most spiritual practitioners, they run, of course, in the long-term time of Life race, which is of course having its own characteristics. And that is why I wanted to underline this because it's not very clear here, but the end has a special significance. Remember, whatever the end catches you in, that's what it is. If you have prayed for 11 years and in the 12 years you start, in the 12th year you start blaspheming, And you are caught in the moment of your death, when you hit your bardo, you are caught with a mind which is full of blasphemy and materialism and demonism, you will go in hell. And if you have been blaspheming for 11 years, and then you start repenting and praying, and you start doing big time work, and then in the moment of your death, all your mind can do is say a mantra, and pray with humbleness, then you are saved. It sounds very unfair, doesn't it? The first will be the last, and the last will be the first. That is why cultivate the end. Always look at the end, because the fruit defines the tree, and the end is the one which chooses or determines the fate of things. This is a very, very important teaching. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day he will be raised to life. It cannot be more eloquent than this. It's like Jesus repeatedly predicted clearly what he was going to go through. Either he used mathematically these words or these are a little bit twisted historically. It's obvious that they are a plus-minus 20% approximation coming through translation, through the centuries and through the friendly influence of the church adjusting it here and there. But the essence of it obviously remains that the man predicted very clearly that the things were going to take a certain course or another. Then, the mother of Zebedee's sons, he had two disciples, two of his apostles, who were brothers, James and John, both the sons of Zebedee. And the mother of Zebedee's sons, their mother, came to Jesus with her sons, those two, and kneeling down, asked the favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Like to be second to you, to be second great in the kingdom of heaven, to be your lieutenants. She's asking a terrible thing. She's asking a huge thing. It's like intercession. You know, it's what somebody would do to a king. It's like influence, you know, I'm putting a good word for my sons, they are nice to you, you be nice to them or whatever. It's like I'm the first to ask a favor, nobody thought about this before or whatever. And of course this is a completely preposterous request because things in the kingdom of heaven cannot happen that way. But you see that the mother of Zeb, the mother of these uh, two guys, they could not forget their social things. Uh, they wanted, she suddenly now wanted to make a career even out of being an apostle being a disciple of Jesus was not enough now they had to be one to the left and one to the right like to have a position to be bosses to be uh, vice presidents of the company or whatever because uh, everything should be done that way so in this way this is bringing a materialistic egoistic human-interested way of thinking into spirituality. And Jesus, of course, has to answer fittingly to this. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Of course, when the time came, actually nobody could. All the 11 apostles who are left, besides Judas who did the blunder, All the other 11, they ran squealing like dogs. So actually, although they have been warned a lot, and many of them said, we are going to be with you, actually none of them was able to bear the burden of that. So they are just bragging unconsciously, not realizing what they are talking, and Jesus knows that they are just children, that not everybody can take this. And he simply says, first of all, I am getting to what I am getting, because I am going to go through an ordeal, which is inimaginable. I am going to drink the most bitter cup. And he says, you want to be the lieutenants of me, but what are you doing to be the lieutenant? Just you are coming and asking me for it, like a favor. This is not a favor. You have to earn it. Whoever will be there, has to earn it through an exemplary lifestyle. And therefore, He says, what can you do, what I do? I mean, why why do you want to measure with this? Why don't you have measure enough just to be yourselves? Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. He simply says an amazing thing that he will not decide upon that, He surrenders completely to the will of God. Who will be there high up in Shambhala or whatever you want to call that? I will not decide. That is according to the spiritual merit. That is according to the divine grace. That is ultimately according to the will of God. So he says, yes, you are going to drink from my cup. He warns them, you'll get the same fate as me. Always remember that out of the 11 disciples of Jesus who survived the moment, plus two others, one was added immediately after, and then Paul came, all these 12, 13, whatever many they were, all of them were martyrized, one in a more terrible way than another, exception made of one who is John. John, actually, uh, one of these two. As a matter of fact, he did not undergo martyrdom, And he lived for 101 years or whatever, having had a very mysterious fate, out of which some people say that actually he reached physical immortality and he was transported to Shambhala and he was one of the rulers of Shambhala at this time. But anyhow, the others, James, uh, the, the brother of John, and all the others, Peter and Paul and whoever, all of them, Andrew and Philip and whatever, all of them, have been killed violently in martyrdom. All of them have been murdered and died the death of martyrs. So basically Jesus is very clear about that. But he also says, I cannot grant that, because that comes through divine will. When the ten heard about this, that there was some going behind their back, that this woman went to ensure. A good place to her sons in a, such a materialistic way. They were indignant with the two brothers. Obviously they are indignant because they are egoistic and they wanted the same thing and they felt betrayed. It's like, ha, huh, smart demons, you know, smart devils. They went and asked for that. You know, it's kind of, and what if Jesus would have said yes, you know, then we would have been fucked. Uh, basically all of them were secretly Uh, longing for the same thing it's the same game of ego brought into spirituality Jesus called them together and said you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them not so with you instead whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant Basically, he said, it's not like the Gentiles who have rulers and tribal leaders and authorities and this. He doesn't plan, although the church today is like this, with popes and bishops and authority and so on. Jesus, when he speaks about the kingdom of heaven, not what's happening on the earth, he says, it shall not be like this. He says, the one who wishes to be great among you must be your servant. That means it's like You can say, wow, the king of Shambhala is great. Yes, but at the same time, he most humbly serves everybody. You cannot be great in such a reality without serving. Most people believe that in the kingdom of heaven will be like with kings. Once you are great, everybody will kiss your ass and serve you. And Jesus says it's quite the contrary. When you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you have to serve. Jesus himself said often, I did not come to be served, but to serve. And at the same time, Jesus at some point, I don't remember if it's in Matthews or in another gospel, he even, to demonstrate it, he washes the feet of his own disciples. It's like, I'm like a servant to you. I'm serving you. This is what I am, ultimately. So in this way, Jesus immediately felt that this was becoming institutionalized and tainted by these egoistic desires, and he steps in, And he says, no, in the kingdom of heaven it's quite the opposite. Whoever is great is the one who is the most selfless, the one who is the most of service to the others. That is why, remember, it's again, it's not like in Kali Yuga. In Kali Yuga we think that those who are stupid and let go and serve the others and whatever, they will be abused and they will not get anything. And those who behave like kings and get all the benefits and they get served, they are doing good. But Jesus says, the first will be the last, and the last will be the first. Actually, the one who was humble and served, gets the cherry on top of the cake, and the others are becoming the last. That is why, never forget this, because we live in a world of reversed values, and very many things in Kali Yuga, are made in such a way as to discourage us, from being good, from being selfless, from giving up, from having abnegation. We always try to be served, not to serve because we think it's stupid of us to let go and to be too good or to do whatever or whatever. And Jesus says that's exactly where the secret is. You have to serve. That's greatness. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is supreme humbleness. I came to give my life, that means I am valuable and wise, and the others are assholes, and yet I give my precious life for theirs, which is a filthy, unworthy, miserable animal, almost life. Where is the justice of this? I did not come to be served, although I deserve to be a king among men. I am the son of man and everybody should bow down their head in the dust in front of me because I am the most noble creature that treads the dust of this planet. And instead of asking for my rightful right that I should be treated according to my spiritual status, actually I am the one who is mocked, I am the one who will be beaten up and crucified and whatever, and I am the one who serves everybody and even gives his life for the others. This is the paradox, this is the abnormality of Kali Yuga. In Satya Yuga, maybe the things go like this, that the spiritual one is indeed spiritual, because all the others are humble and aware, and they realize this man He's special. We have to treat him special because he is special and we have to give him everything so that he can deliver to us his wisdom because he deserves this. But in Kali Yuga, people don't care if you deserve it or not spiritually and the world is so dark and so demonic that it's exactly upside down and therefore the one who is spiritual is treated like shit and the one who is non-spiritual but has power... In these ways, he seems to be like I am in charge and whatever. That is why many, many abnormal things in terms of spirituality happen today. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. This is indeed a very beautiful thing. If you'll make some yama with this scene, you will see. You can imagine. There is this crowd which is already starting becoming a little bit institutionalized. Like these are the first ones. These are the close disciples, these are the outsiders, the numbers, the crowd. And there is a little bit like everybody thinks about things uh, with their own interest. And there they are, two losers, two beggars, two outsiders, two miserable blind on the side of the road. They cry and they cry something which is even a bit bold. It's a bit blasphemous. They call Jesus Lord, Son of David, like they call him. Uh, you are the Son of God, you are the Messiah, you are the Lord, and so on. And they call him with loud voice, praising him as it was. The way it should have been. If it would have been in Satya Yuga, everybody would have realized that this man was what he was. But in Kali Yuga, people were blinded. By, and this man, they say the truth, and because they say the truth, everybody feels like uh, a bit disturbed, it's embarrassed, you know. We are going and there is some procession and we are going with Jesus somewhere and suddenly that stupid beggar there starts saying, Lord, Son of David, Messiah, God, help us. And we just tell him, shut up, man. You are disturbing the old. Don't you see we are busy here? We are doing this. It's like already losing the freshness. It's like don't have the spirit of it. And these people, fortunately, they were inspired. They had the the salvation was upon them in that day Because they had the inspiration to insist, to continue, to say, what the heck? Even if we make fools out of ourselves, we have to do, this is the chance of a lifetime. So they simply shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Doing a little bit of, again, of a bold blasphemy, because to call Jesus, Lord, Son of David, when he was so controversial, was a little bit like, whoa, you know, these people are overdoing it. And everybody felt embarrassed because the other people they did not have this is the thing sometimes a child comes up and says "Uh, who do you think I am or whatever and the child tells to Jesus you are the son of God you are the son of the living God you are God and everybody when a child blurts out such a thing everybody feels a little bit embarrassed it's like the child is a bit too pure it's a bit too open blurts it out what no adult would do. Why? Because the adult is impure. The adult is full of impurities. The adult has doubts. The adult is cynical and sarcastic and skeptical and whatever. And he doesn't have the power like Peter who was a little bit of a grown-up child to stand up to Jesus and to say, I say you are God. You are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. It's kind of... you have to be a bit crazy To go like this, to make a fool of yourself, to say a big thing like this. Uh, When somebody says a big thing like this, you will notice, even in gatherings like this, when somebody comes and says, I feel that like this and I feel like that, everybody is like putting their head a bit in between the shoulders and feels a little bit embarrassed, like, isn't this too much? Isn't this like, I mean, it's a bit, it sounds preposterous, you know? It's kind of, we have common sense here. We are decent people, you know. You can't overdo it like this. But funny enough is that the truth is in the mouth of children. And these people, simple as they were, that's why Jesus praises the simple in the spirit. Because the simple in the spirit, they don't think too much. And in their simplicity, they can blurt out the biggest truth. It's obvious. And like a child, he says, for me, you are God. And it's kind of everybody says, right, yeah. Mm. Uh, It's kind of, you know, according to me, it's too much to say that. Not according to this simple-minded, childlike people. And that's why people rebuke them and they say, oh, shut up, shut up. It's because people, if you make some yama with this and try to see this scene in Akasha a little bit, to look how it must have been to imagine the scene, you will see that the people feel embarrassed because... Those people were emotionally too open. They were like embarrassing everybody with telling something which you don't dare to tell because actually you still have your own doubts and in your mind there is a mixture of angels and demons while they at least have the advantage of being pretty blank in their mind and not having to fight with the demons of their own skepticism and thinking too much and doubting too much and all the others. And then, of course, the outcome is obvious. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? It's obvious that they have faith. He doesn't ask them, you believe in me anymore? Because these people, they already made fools of themselves. And obviously, they believe beyond. It's kind of their last hope, their only hope. And he simply asked, what do you want of me? He answers to their call. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. This is one in the long line of miracles again. Because it's not yet 12 o'clock, I'll read a little bit more. My voice is getting a bit tired. I'll read a little bit more from the paragraph 21 and then we'll stop for tonight. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Beth to bet Pagi or whatever on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her called by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken to the prophet, I think it's Isaiah, the prophet, who says, quote, say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is a quote, again, it's even mentioned here, it's from Zechariah, the prophet, And basically, this was an old thing. And funny enough, it seems that Jesus had such a clairvoyance of things that he realized now it was going to happen. And because it was prophesied this way, he was just going to go this way. How he knew that there would be a donkey and whatever, and this we don't know. The scene is not clear enough. It appears that he had a foreknowledge of things. And he simply, like in a blind date, he simply sent two disciples ahead and said, go, you'll find a donkey, bring it to me, you'll have it without any problems and whatever. And in this way, the prophecy was fulfilled to the letter. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. Now, how would Jesus sit on two animals at the same time? That's again a mystery. It's one of the formulations in the Bible which does not allow us any clarification. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted Hosanna to the sound to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This being all of them very religious things from the Psalms and others. And it's a praise for the... And at the same time, this is one of the disturbing things, because putting the clothes on the floor was also one religious act which was done for the bishops, for the great priests, but it was also done in the case of the kings. It's the habit until today to roll the red carpet when the presidents and the kings come. It's the red carpet. They cannot step directly on the floor. They are supposed to step on a cloth, on a carpet, And therefore putting the cloth so that Jesus even on a donkey should step on them is like treating Jesus as a king. This is one of the mysterious things which the Bible has never elucidated enough that at the same time in the history of Jesus there is obviously a claim to kinghood. And actually Jesus when he is condemned the Romans put on his cross uh, Jesus of Nazareth king of the Jews. Uh, allegedly there was some activity there that Jesus being actually a rightful heir to the throne he was from the family of David of King David and whatever there was there that the religious people would have liked to make Jesus the Pope and the King at the same time to make him the real King of the day which of course is an offense would have been an offense from several standpoints here, I cannot elucidate this for you, this is something which you need to meditate on for yourself to see how it was. This is one of the mysteries of Akasha, which is meant to stay like this for those who cannot see it directly. Those who can see it uh, will uh, try to see it in their own ways. Because there are some things in the life of Jesus which sometimes don't fit. On one hand, Jesus is this prophet who is always so humble and everything. And he seems to be a total hobo. But on the other hand, there are some things which seem to be quite funny. For example, when he is arrested, Peter takes out the sword and cuts the ear off of one. Where did Peter have a sword? He was just a fisherman from Galilee. Uh, Why were they wearing swords? Was everybody armed in that entourage? When the priests arrested Jesus, they sent a whole cohort. They sent, I don't know, two detachments. Why was the, why would you need 200 soldiers to arrest a man and his 12 disciples who are just a bunch of crazy prophets and having nothing and so on? What if there was something a little bit more there? Also, it is the ridiculous thing, as you know probably from unheard history, and you will read it here a bit later, that actually when Jesus himself is betrayed, uh, Judas has to identify him by a kiss. That's pretty funny because everybody had seen Jesus in uh, Jerusalem and he apparently was quite an apparition. He was, quite a, he was a tall guy with red hair, with blue eyes. He was a fiery prophet. He definitely looked outstanding. And you didn't need anybody to kiss this guy to show who he was. Like this is the guy. Like why do you need to kiss this man to identify him? Because everybody can see him and knows who he is he is dressed in a peculiar way and whatever therefore there are some historical mysteries which are and many others but I don't have time to go now in them which do not elucidate clearly but it appears that at the time when Jesus was doing this thing some people were actually following a more uh, manu forte a more uh, armed force type of uh, policy trying to push Jesus actually as a king that it was not a metaphor but actually the people when he entered Jerusalem they treated him like the king they laid the red carpet for him and they said here comes the Messiah the Messiah being automatically the lawful king there was no doubt that when Messiah would come Messiah would automatically be the king it was impossible to think that Messiah would be there and somebody else, some other dude will be the king at the same time, taking decisions or whatever. All the kings automatically would lose their position in the presence of the Messiah, who supersedes them, who surpasses them in authority automatically. That is why there seems to be some historically unclarified thing, some historians try to speculate on this, of how actually strong was this royal claim of Jesus, that uh, the people of that time actually had the right inspiration of making the spiritual leader the temporal leader as well, which would be the most wise course in any uh, society of the world. Theoretically, it's like this. It's like in Tibet, right? The man who is the Dalai Lama and who is supposed to be a spiritual leader is at the same time supposed to be the king and have the full authority. A man like Mahatma Gandhi, who is the father of a nation should at the same time be the king, should at the same time be the man who should have the authority, because he is indeed the one. Of course, that doesn't sound very democratic, but at the same time, remember that spirituality has never been democratic, and with Jesus, he didn't ask people to vote on his words, or neither did Moses, thousands of years ago, ask people to vote on the Ten Commandments of God, if they are right or not the Ten Commandments were given and either you liked them or not or you agreed with them or not they still were the Ten Commandments from God so in the same way some things in the spiritual life automatically because we speak about the Divine Consciousness they cannot, they work in another way and in the case of Jesus you can see that people praise Him as Supreme Spiritual Leader but also people being materialistic, they need a king, they need a temporal ruler, they need an earthly ruler to take care of their woes here down on earth. And that is why, of course, Jesus finds himself more or less involuntarily pushed in the position of being a king as well, not just a spiritual messenger, a spiritual herald. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Let's continue a few more minutes. Jesus entered the temple area, and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers, and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called the house of prayer, this being from one of the prophets, again from Isaiah, but you are making it a den of robbers, this again being from Jeremiah. So here is again, it's one of the extreme gestures of Jesus, Which indeed makes him a little bit of a king. He is not just a man who says what is right. And if you don't want to do what is right, he will say, well, I told you what is good. Bye-bye. He takes action. He actually went there and kicked the tables over and did a lot of fuss. And basically here he acts as a man who has physical authority, who has temporal authority, that he makes the rules. You have changed the rules of the game, and I'm coming and telling you. And I'm not only coming and telling you; I am enforcing you with a stro- enforcing it with a strong hand, which again shows a special feature of authority in Jesus. Which again, we don't know how far it actually went in that time. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Of course, only a monstrous ego, this is how, these were the people in charge, these were the people with power and... They were people, anyhow, the people with power will be Manipuristic, but these were Manipuristic people in the middle of a Manipuristic nation, and therefore their Manipura was really big, and obviously they were not going to let the cake out of their hands so easily. So instead, Jesus was doing wonderful things, and these people just found a reason to get indignant and to get negative at it, which shows that with the people who are demonic and egoistic, You can do the most wonderful things and they will always find something to blame and they will turn against you. That is why uh, sometimes it's not even worth trying when you know automatically what the outcome of things is with this kind of psychology. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never heard from the lips of children and infants you have ordained? Praise this being from, again, from one of the Psalms, and he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night, so basically, he was not spending the night in town, and he kind of answered very clearly, always with references from the Psalms and the others, from the prophets, and he simply said, the children are telling the truth, and this is the most pure praise. and let us stop here I would continue on Thursday because we already covered a lot tonight and we are coming to the end of this so we'll stop here for the time being let's see if there are any questions if you want me to insist on any of the issues if there are any problems or if you'd like us to go deeper in anything and if not we'll stop No, it was simply a test and it was meant to be like this first of all showing the miserable nature of the human beings of our times that these people who knew him very well and who have seen miracles and the dead raised out of their tombs, and the blind getting back their sight and everything, even those people could not bear the pressure of it, which shows how fearful we are, how egoistic we are, how limited we are, and how difficult it is to have indeed a spirituality. It's funny that some of the martyrs which came later, being inspired, enriched by the Spirit of Jesus, they found this noble thing that they actually resisted. They even gave their lives and so on, which the, Apostle, the apostles couldn't do. I remember that once I was having a spiritual talk with my first yoga teacher, and I have asked him for curiosity, what he perceived in his own intuition, in his own meditation of it, what, what would have happened if, for example Peter who was the most hot of them there is an episode where Peter denies Jesus having known Jesus three times in a row which Jesus had actually warned him that will happen and he does it exactly like this because of fear because he is caught by a mob and he is afraid to be lynched by the mob uh, or delivered to the priests and have the same faith as Jesus on the spot and uh, I asked this question at that time, I have never meditated on this, that's why I'm uh, delivering you the answer of somebody else who has meditated on it. I've asked, what would have happened if, for example, Peter would have been strong enough and resisted then, and instead of Jesus martyrized, there would have been probably two of them killed, or whatever. And uh, his understanding of it, his perception of it, he said that the history of the whole world would have been very, very different if Peter would have had such a power to resist, to actually to bear, to take the cross together with Jesus. But he did not have it, as Jesus well knew. And therefore this was a challenge. It's like the spiritual history of this planet could have been pushed even more. Spinning the wheel of Dharma could have been done even faster. But this is the human nature. This is as much as humans were able to do at that time. But the human beings have been enriched. to Remember that Jesus means a moment of regeneration in the history of planet. At his time, the Romans...